intention that this ship will be returned to active service. So not only will she carry passengers on the Firth of Clyde and elsewhere around the United Kingdom, but she will serve as the country's first skills and training cadet ship. That was Princess Anne earlier this year speaking as royal patron of the Friends of Queen Mary, announcing plans to return the ship that was named after her great-grandmother to active service. I'm Tim Dunn, transport historian, geographer and enthusiast, and in this series I'm exploring our love of the sea through the stories of some of our best-loved ships and how they've managed to survive in Britain today. Today I'm standing on the bridge of the Queen Mary. No, not the transatlantic liner. This is the TS Queen Mary, a turbine steamer built for cruising the Clyde. And we're here appropriately for a series called Stormy Weather in rather inclement weather, shall we say, here on the riverside as the wind whips around us. Now, she too, the Queen Mary, had a reputation for luxury but she's more a pocket liner than a transatlantic behemoth of the same name. The RMS Queen Mary, of course, is long retired and now a floating hotel, permanently moored in Long Beach, California. But this Queen Mary, two years its senior, is even now planning to sail once again, 90 years after her launch. She's about 250 feet long and over a thousand tonnes, the biggest of the ships we've talked about in this series. And with me is Michael McLaughlin of the Friends of TS Queen Mary. Now tell me, Michael, what was so special about her? What's well, in this Queen Mary encapsulated the essence of Glasgow. She was central to the social history of the city for well over four decades. In fact, Glaswegians viewed her with a deep affection and almost a, a unique form of respect. Now, when she was built back in the early 1930s, the country was still very much in the throes of the Depression. So at that point, placing an order for her was a huge act of faith. Unemployment was soaring and we're talking roughly one in six workers were without a job in the UK. And in shipbuilding areas like Glasgow, well, it was worse, right? We're talking almost 50%. She wasn't just any old Clyde steamer, though, right? Her owners, Williamson Buchanan, they took a gamble to invest in a luxury ship, one which could carry over 2,000 passengers on a pleasure cruise down the river. This made her the largest in the fleet. Now, the Queen Mary was advertised as Britain's finest pleasure steamer, and she really was, no doubt about it. For passenger comfort, quite frankly, she had no equal. She sailed from Bridge Wharf in the very heart of the city, just down from Glasgow Central Station on the south bank of the river. Now, on a busy summer's day, the queue would run all the way along the dock, across King George V Bridge, up Oswald Street, nearly all the way to Central Station itself. Now, we're talking about a third of a mile here. The pursers in the quayside would regularly count their way along the queue and tell the unlucky ones near at the back, sorry, come back tomorrow. And sure enough, they would. 
Now the ship was more than just a great day out with fresh air and wonderful scenery. The other steamers had that. But Queen Mary herself offered space and affordable luxury, all with that touch of regal glamour. We've actually got a clip of steamer enthusiast Bill Patterson reading what one captain really thought of her. The Queen Mary II was quite simply a magnificent cruising ship, a real pleasure to be on, both as passenger or crew. Beautifully planned by experienced sailors and stewards, people who actually had to use the vessel day in and day out, it had clean lines, generous passenger accommodation and good deck space. To my mind, she was the only boat in the entire company that the management hadn't had a chance to interfere with when she was being designed, and it really showed. In high season, she could carry about 13,000 passengers a week. Her usual routes took her to either the Aran coast or through the Kyles of Butte, the beautiful scenic narrows that separate the Isle of Butte from the mainland. Early season, every May, large employers like Colville Steel or Collins the Publishers would charter her for their annual outings. It was the best option for taking a workforce of many hundreds away for the day, and Queen Mary offered the largest capacity, especially appealing to those companies who had 1,500 employees or more. The main season ran from Springbank holiday weekend at the end of May through to mid-September. After that, she was laid up in Greenock Albert Harbour until the following year. Isn't it interesting that actually, unlike the ferries, these excursion steamers, as they were often called, were, were seasonal things. What, so four or five months of operation every year? But what was it like to actually be a passenger? So with me now is Barbara Winton, who is actually Queen Mary's longest serving volunteer, who was regularly on board as a child, and so has a long association with this ship. So. Barbara, what was it like to actually sail on her? It was wonderful. You really felt you were on something special and I just loved the whole thing about her. There was like an atmosphere on the ship. It was a great day out starting from the heart of Glasgow. It meant the first half hour was spent passing through the docks and shipyards. But once you passed Dumbarton, the river opened out and you were surrounded by the wonderful scenery. Of course, we forget now how industrial it really was. And it seems being based in the heart of Glasgow in those days might have actually had a few unexpected challenges. And so here's Bill Patterson. A sale would not be complete without a visit to the dining saloon. Full silver service, starched white linen, efficiency and good quality food were all hallmarks of a trip on the Queen Mary II. In those days, the city was extremely industrial. The second city of the empire with shipyards as far as the eye could see, docks, iron foundries, printing works, carpet factories, chemical and dye works, a constant industrial machine pounding away night and day, and all discharging that waste into the Clyde. Every night, as the general roar of city centre life gradually stilled, you could hear the toxic gases rising from the industrial silt of the riverbed below and gently bubbling upwards to break the surface. One morning, I remember the chief steward going ballistic when he went into the dining room and discovered that the night before one of the assistant stewards had forgotten to close one of the porthole windows. Overnight, a thousand pieces of silver cutlery and silver plate 
that had been meticulously cleaned, polished and laid out on the starched white linen tablecloths ready for the next day's passengers had turned a nasty, dark brown. There was no option but for the whole catering staff to abandon their normal duties and set to work to rescue the situation. Needless to say, by the time we were ready to sail at 10am, the entire saloon was once more at its gleaming best, and the boys knew that they had better never, ever repeat that mistake. So, Michael, what happened to the ship? Clyde cruising became a less attractive prospect and Queen Mary's popularity declined, not least because she was such a large vessel, but with so few passengers sailing on board. The atmosphere for which she was once so famous had all but diminished. She was finally taken out of service in September 1977. She became a floating restaurant on the Thames with her engines removed. For over two decades, she was a prominent and well-loved attraction, but sadly in 2009, that too came to an end, and for a number of years, she was laid up at Tilbury, unloved and awaiting her fate. By late 2015, it looked as if she would be sold for scrap, but at the 11th hour, we were able to step in and buy her. And so after an absence of nearly 40 years, we were able to bring her undertow back to the Clyde, the one and only retired Clyde steamer ever to return home. So, going down now into the bowels of the ship, I'm coming to find out exactly what the future has in store for this remarkable, remarkable machine. And with me now is one of the instigators of this project, Ian Sim. And Ian is the chair of the Friends of Queen Mary. Ian, tell us more. Well, firstly, it was absolutely wonderful to have Princess Anne here at the Science Centre in March to announce that the ship, which of course was named after her great grandmother is going to be reimagined and as you know the ship has other royal connections as well so we're extremely proud of the history and the ship's connection with Glasgow but we're now very much looking towards the future with this magnificent ship sailing again. We've put a lot of thought into how we can best celebrate her past but also to sustain her for the generations to come. So in terms of the design the new interior spaces are going to be traditional but they're going to have a modern twist a nod to the glamour of the past if you will but this is also about getting the Queen Mary out and about so that she can reconnect to the wider UK. And a key component of that will be building on our experience working with young students and cadets. And to that end, we've formed the Skills and Training Academy in association with the City of Glasgow College. At the moment, we're hard at work in the detailed planning phase and also interacting with all of our corporate sponsors and private philanthropic backers. What strikes me is just how much support and help you're getting from commercial partners for all this. Is that an important part of your vision for this ship? Well, absolutely. This has been integral to the approach since we took ownership in October 2015. We pride ourselves, in fact, on not being reliant on public money. We've received no public funds at all. We've interacted with commercial partners the length and breadth of the United Kingdom. And since 2015, we've actually raised and invested almost £3.85 million. And we're quietly confident that we can continue to raise the funds that we need on that basis. And on top of all of that, of course, we've got the tremendous patronage of Robbie Coltrane, who was our founding patron, and more recently, our Commonwealth patron, Sam Neill, the very famous actor from Jurassic Park and many other major Hollywood films. 
Now, the reason we've come down to the bowels of the ship, really, is because a key part of Prince of Sound's announcement was about reinstating the engines. So we're down here to look at where they really should be, because I'm looking around, and there's not much here, Ian. <laughs> no, that's true. Certainly down here, there's nothing at the moment. When she was in service, the space that we're in right now, you would see two huge boilers, and then immediately after, you would have three steam turbines. There's nothing here at all now. This is completely empty. It was completely stripped out when she was converted to become a restaurant and corporate function space in London. In fact, what we're standing on right now is about 200 tonnes of concrete which they had to put in to give her ballast when they removed the engines. And so certainly putting engines back into her is going to be a technical challenge. But we're very confident that we can accomplish this if we undertake careful planning, which we're doing, and careful budgeting. Incredible. Where do you go to get <laughs> brand new engines for a ship like this? Well, there are still plenty of places that you can get brand new engines and there are options open to us. But what we can't do, unfortunately, is go back to the original Parsons turbines because they are now museum pieces and they're beyond feasible reuse. Right, because you're not building a museum here, are you? You're building a, an active ship for the future. Oh, absolutely. We're repurposing her for the modern generation and our core ethos is education. And so it makes a lot of sense to bring a degree of modernity to the vessel because that is, after all, what the young engineers and deck officers are going to be using when they pursue their careers at sea. So I can see we're actually berthed opposite these huge dry docks. They're just used now, the Govan Graving Docks. They were used in that Sam Mendes film, uh, 1917. But aren't they also going to be useful for you in the future? Yes, we certainly think so. The graving docks were formerly used for ship repairing work and they're grade one listed structures and when they were built they were designed to take some of the bigger ships in the world and of course that would be a tremendous asset to help us with the project to restore Queen Mary. Absolutely brilliant. I love how this has become a future-facing project. It's taking what's really a, frankly, empty vessel, because almost everything of historic note is gone, and is making it into a vehicle for investment, to start new journeys and new careers for new generations of British people on the water. What a way to end this series. Thank you to all the staff and volunteers who I've met, and thank you too for joining me. I've just got one last thing to ask of you, though. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, then look up these ships, either as a passenger or as a volunteer, because these ships, they need you. Stormy Weather is a Bell Media production, supported by the Audio Content Fund.